So part two of this morning in looking at the Eightfold Path, we just spent some time on the first fold of the Eightfold Path, wise view, and that uh, being in its largest um, understanding is the outline of the Four Noble Truths. And then as we deepen our understanding of what's important within the realm of suffering and the end of suffering, suffering is cause the end of suffering and its path, we start uncovering all sorts of patterns. Um, and so if you really got into wise view, you would basically have 40 years of what the Buddha taught <clears throat> and taught in many different circumstances. So again, the detail uh, becomes apparent as you go deeper in, but just have some guiding context about what is wise view it starts with the broadest view, which is the Four Noble Truths. Suffering and the end of suffering is two ways of, uh, one way of summing it up, but then breaking those apart as we did early on, suffering is cause, is complete eradication and how to do that, the Eightfold Path. So again, <clears throat> we could stay on the topic of uh, right view and when we go into these other folds the Eightfold Path, we're still on right view because we're talking about it, we're clarifying it, we're understanding it. Right view is also understanding how these other factors work and how they work well together. Does that make sense? Is that not, I don't want to baffle people with that. <clears throat> but as we start opening up this first path factor, it also contains everything and it gives context for everything so that all these other path factors that come in, they play a role in the eradication of ignorance, the eradication of, of craving, and therefore the eradication of all the dukkha that comes out of that craving. So <clears throat> looking at again at the, the second uh, page of the piece of paper, the detail of the Eightfold Path, we come into wise, <clears throat> wise intention, sama sankapa. And it has these three qualities. Now it's not just these three qualities. So you don't have to limit yourself to just these three qualities, but three qualities come out right away to be what's guiding you and are you being guided by the right thing coming out of uh, right view. So for example, when our view wise view is developing, but we're not fully in it, you might say, oh, this wise view is amazing. I really want to develop myself so that I'm really free. And you're picturing it, you want to become it. So you go into an accumulation mode. But if you really knew wise view, you wouldn't want to accumulate because that's very woven. That's that craving, that becoming. So the nice thing about having wise intention is that it makes sure that you're actually applying your view to the actions you're about to take. And so you, it's like right translation between view and action. It passes through wise intention. That's the role of this path factor. So right away, as we align with wise view and develop wise view, the first guiding principle <clears throat> is that our actions are guided by renunciation. And renunciation could be thought of as really giving things up. 
but really the development of uh, renunciation is non-accumulation, non-grasping, non-owning, not trying to find happiness and security through binding yourself to objects, to property, to identity. So with wise view, we go into a letting go, an opening up, opening up what is clenched, becoming more open-handed in relationship to life. You may then want to actually renounce a whole bunch of things that you see you've taken up that are not helpful. Identities that, don't, that no longer serve you, relationships that no longer serve you, property that no longer serves you. It's like I'm, um, I just cleaned out my garage and there are things that I kept <clears throat> that I really, I hadn't done that level of a, a really like an emptying out in a long time. And so I had whole boxes full of memorabilia that I thought later on in life I would want to have. But when I actually got to later on in life, I didn't want them. <laughs> but I kept them just in case I would want them. And so there was some pencil that had these teeth marks on it. And it was, I remember in college, it was funny. Someone grabbed my pencil, bit it five times and gave it back to me. And I thought it was so funny, I kept it. But I can't remember who did that. <laughs> but at the time I kept it because it was kind of happiness for my future that I would have this bitten on wooden pencil. And I was trying to give myself happiness in the future. And it was lightly happy, but no longer something I really wanted to keep with me. I didn't need that strategy for happiness, that bitten pencil. And I started finding all these things like, wow, why did I keep this? And now it's all bitten by mice and it's old and faded. And like, oh, this was a happiness strategy when I was younger. I couldn't let go of it then because I might want it later. And as this has deepened in me, <clears throat> I'm lighter and lighter and lighter and happier and happier and happier. Not because I'm going numb and getting rid of things that I really want. As I'm actually more content the burdens of ownership and the burdens of accumulation for my security, there are fewer and fewer things I want to have that relationship to. And I have a much more open-handed relationship to life, to my identities, to this body, my relationships, my property. Um, I want to have it. I want to have the right relationship to it. So as I've gone into right view, it's not about accumulating. It's about letting go. And what can you let go of skillfully? What's the right thing to let go of? And if you haven't figured out the right way of letting go of, say, your children or your parents or your job, that's not the right thing to let go of as far as throwing it away. But how can you go from a tight relationship to it to something that's a little more open, a little less caught in that tight relationship? So that's how you know you're applying wisdom is that there's this... Uh, it passes through renunciation. It passes through this uh, guidance of uh, less owning, less fascinating, uh, fastening, less uh, contracting. So that's how you know you're applying the Four Noble Truths, is that you're guided by a sense of non-accumulation. So that if greed comes up or anger comes up <clears throat> and tanha starts to really grow in you, you may not know it, you may kind of be deluded by it, but you see yourself accumulating something and you see yourself 
grasping onto something for security, a partner or an experience, then it runs right into this uh, renunciation, this letting go. Like, how could I be guided walking the Eightfold Path and think it's about accumulating? I must have a misunderstanding. So it's an important... uh, um, Important intention is renunciation, the ability to let things be, to let them go. Then you move into the second one, which is, again, the... The accurate poly is non is harmlessness, but it might be easier for us to really tune into it if we talk about kindness. So I kind of check my motivations for what I'm about to do, and I say, no, it's not about accumulating, but what is kindness? So I'm not accumulating anything, but I am motivated by kindness. So I want to be kind to this body. I will go feed it. But I'm not trying to accumulate food. It's just how it's it's um, it's healthy for my body. I'm not trying to accumulate property, but it's good to have a a house to, during the winter at least. <laughs> it's not all year round. So then I start to have a um, a kindness and letting go guidance as I start to move into action. Is this making sense? Does it bring up any questions? Or if they do, you can ask them. So then you start having. This is the translating factor, the second factor of the Eightfold Path. It translates understanding into action, and it passes through. It's like a committee, at least the three-person committee. It's like, here's your view. Oh, here's an action. Does it align with the view? Is it about accumulation, or is it about letting go? Okay, yeah, I'm not trying to accumulate anything here. Is it about kindness? So yeah, this is kind to me, kind to my body, kind to my friends. Um, I'm living into my responsibilities. And that will be that will be kind to all the people who I'm working with. I'll be easier on them if I'm responsible. Okay, yeah. So I'm not trying to accumulate something. I'm not trying to improve my ego. I'm not trying to get really rich. <clears throat> I'm able to let go and then from within that field of letting go, what are kind actions that I can take? And then also non-cruelty, which is the third person on the committee to kind of <clears throat> get three signatures behind every action. <laughs> At least get them like, yeah, it's okay, it's okay. And just seeing is, I'm letting go, I'm kind, but do I, when you bring in compassion, because uh, dukkha is really no joke. And so I might be letting go, I might be kind, but I still might be avoiding true contact with things that are difficult. And so this third thing comes in, say, are these actions about avoiding what's difficult? Or do I have compassion in my heart? And what does compassion say about this activity? Maybe I should stay with something that's difficult a little longer. That would be the compassionate thing. Maybe the compassionate thing is to take a break from contact with what's difficult so I can later make contact with it. So having compassion reflection on your activity and seeing if that's part of your intention for what you're about to do. You can do this very intentionally and really look at your intentions all day long and just see why why am I about to speak? Am I going for ego points or is this about um, understanding? 
is this kindness to other people, is the question I'm about to ask, the statement I'm about to make, um, what's really motivating that? Am I trying to be kind to myself so I have better understanding? Or am I trying to gain something from the group by saying something in a clever way so that I get to feel that nice hit of I'm, some, I'm someone special? You start scanning for what your actual motivation is, what your actual intentions are. So they pass through this. And as you get uh, more mindful, more sensitive, you can feel when you're off. But you might be off and not know it. And so you have these little red flags that go off and say, this is about accumulation, this is not about kindness, or this is not about compassion. And then you see that your motivations, your intentions are off. So that's why this path factor is so important. It is what translates the view into the next three sections, at least. The sila, act, the sila portion, the um, speech, action, and livelihood. Making sure that they're connected to the wise understanding. So that, you know, a transmission in a car connects the power of the engine to the wheels. Really the transmission here on the Eightfold Path connects the power of the view through wise intention into the tires and as you start to move along, are you being guided by these, at least these three reflections, non-accumulation or letting go, kindness and compassion. These <clears throat> top three here, wise view, wise intention, also begin to disrupt what's called the three poisons. And the three poisons are greed, hatred, and delusion. So wise view begins to counter delusion, not understanding things clearly or really having the wrong understanding. Renunciation begins to counter the poison of greed, craving. And then uh, harmlessness and non-cruelty begin to counter patterns we have around aversion and the type of actions that might come out of that. So those three poisons can become action, deluded actions, greedy actions, or um, aversive actions. And then you have these two factors up at the top in the wisdom section, the panya section, to make sure that these three poisons are not being propagated. Wise view counters delusion, the poison of delusion. Wise, renun- uh, wise intention, you have renunciation, and that counters greed. Yeah, and so craving, lust, greed, all the things that get enchanted by the pleasure of something and then intoxicated by it. And so rise, renunciation comes in and it makes sure that you're not being motivated by accumulation or craving or greed. And then we have two factors, harmlessness and non-cruelty or loving kindness and compassion. And they are there to really um, counter old protective habits of uh, anger. So if I'm about to lash out out of anger, I have this intention that blocks it. I'm not gonna act on that intention. It doesn't align with my view. But I might be temporarily um, enchanted by my anger and think that it's the right thing to do. I'm saving the world by lashing out, only to realize afterwards that it wasn't as I thought. And the same with cruelty, that there might be the sense people I don't like it's better if they have 
harm done to them. Somehow that's good for the world. So if I've really gotten lost in my hatred, then things will come up that will be very uh, cruel intentions. Like not <clears throat> just wanting to kill the mosquito at night, but wanting it to suffer because it robbed me of my sleep. There's like, it's an extra um, distortion when we want to get into uh, lashing out, lashing back, revenge, um, enjoying cruelty. That's one of the intentions here. But also really important, <clears throat> this layer here, wise intention, has the biggest impact on karma. And so if you have renunciation, harmlessness, and non-cruelty, the heavy karma from greed and anger, greed and aversion, gets neutralized because you're not, um, that's the motivation behind action that really determines the karma of it. So wise view, renunciation, and then wise intention with renunciation, harmlessness, and non-cruelty. Um, that's another way of looking at it, is that they get in and they stop that type of karmic activity that many of us are caught up in. Then from that, we're, we have view, and we have this translation, we have intention, led by view, and we go into three kinds of actions. There's speech, there's actual physical actions, and then there's livelihood. Yeah. <clears throat> I just uh, um, recently did a small... Um, I belong to 12-step group, obviously, and um, uh, I, I belong to a small... Um, a small group uh, that we meet and once a month, and we do um, uh, uh, the twelve steps um, uh, from a Buddhist perspective. And I just did a small presentation on <laughs> wise intention. And um, the eighth step is um, uh, we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And um, uh, uh, and with wise intention, uh, talked about renunciation, harm, uh, harmlessness, and uh, non-cruelty. And the intention um, uh, with that step uh, uh, is clearly not to harm and um, not to um, uh, non-cruelty and to renounce uh, re- um, renunciation of uh, uh, perpetuating any of that um, <clears throat> and that's uh, what uh, what the intention of that step is and um, and clearly to be kind um, and to um, um, and the intention is to be kind and compassionate and um, uh, uh, Kevin Griffin is just masterful uh, so we've used a lot of his his um, uh, he's been just groundbreaking in this whole thing um, but this so translates into um, uh, 12 step stuff yeah um, uh, just beautifully sure yeah <clears throat> sure and it the there's a lot of work being done now um, in, in finding 
Buddhist route through recovery because a lot of Buddhists don't necessarily want the other routes, that they really want to see can the Eightfold Path be part of my recovery program or be my recovery program. So that's happening in Noah Levine's community. They're doing a lot with that. Kevin Griffin's doing a lot with that. Other teachers that have been through addiction and recovery, the Dharma has done that for them. And so there's a lot more skillful articulation of the recovery from addiction process and using that. And there is a beautiful overlap because it's really not different territory. It's not two different systems. It's one system and getting lost in your views, getting lost in craving and that agitation agitates the mind. And so it's less happy, less content, more susceptible to craving. And that's, uh, that's um, the first two noble truths going haywire. And then what is the recovery process of that? And that's the Eightfold Path. And then looking at specific themes of recovery and um, people who have done that with the path can now articulate that because they've done it for 10, 20 years. And that's beautiful. And so we have the, uh, um, the view, we have this intention and it's the application of the view when we come into speech, action and livelihood. The, there are multiple guidances of speech um, multiple times the Buddha talked about speech, but in this particular list, it's making sure your speech is honest or truthful, that it is kind in its tone and in its delivery, that the speech is about unity versus division, and that it's useful and not just uh, prattle or not just uh, talking to um, entertain yourself or because you don't like silence. So not being divisive with speech, not splitting people apart or harming relationships. That's where that word uh, I have here is a unity. Those are the four guidances on speech. And it can be verbal speech. It can be all sorts of um, written communication, email. And also it can be internal speech. There's a whole realm inside where we're often um, talking to ourselves and talking to people and then seeing, are you caught in an argument? Are you being violent inside? Is your speech honest? Are you preparing um, some type of manipulation of the truth to get what you want? Or are you being honest? Are you being kind? Is it about unity? Is it useful? Wise action um, are the other precepts minus um, the intoxicants. So you have, of the five precepts, Right here in this classic Eightfold Path, you have wise speech and then three more in the wise action, not killing, not stealing, and not harming through sexual activity. And so you have the most um, coarse example of these, killing, stealing, harming people through sexuality. But like the other noble truths, you deepen and you become more refined in your understanding and you start to see what's actually um, going on in a particular area. So there's not physically harming directly, but then what is the attitude that leads to harm? Often there are little insects in the, uh, my bathtub when I take a shower. Am I in a rush where I'm like, oh, it's your fault you got in here. I don't have the time for you. I'm already late. That mind state really doesn't care that this insect is about to be washed down the drain. <clears throat> but can I stop and recognize 
this bug is trying to live like I'm trying to live. This bug is this bug is bug is caught up in something like I get caught up in something. Why don't we both get through this day okay? And so starting the day off and getting the little spider out of the bathtub or whatever it is, or the moth that would be um, taken out by the, the shower, and saying that non-killing and non-harming, it starts to be quite beautiful when it turns into being on the side of life. I'm on team life. <laughs> I like life. I want it to thrive. Um, so not killing and watching that develop and deepen, not stealing there's the overt stealing, but there's covert ways of doing it that I lose a sense of integrity when I want to borrow something, but I'm afraid someone will say no, and I don't want the complications of having to ask them and if they do say no, and why don't I just take it? And if I do that, it's like, wow, now I'm sorry, they just came in the room, and now I'm feeling a little awkward around them, and pretending like I didn't do it, and now I have to admit that I did it, and like, wow, oh, that's it's just like sickening feeling around taking things versus actually getting caught. And then you really inherit bad feelings when you get caught. But even if you're not caught, there's this lack of integrity, all these little shortcuts that you might take. It's like, I'm not gonna take them. And I like having that integrity. And then feeling people actually starting to trust you because they can tell you're not someone who's nipping around the sides, but you actually have the integrity to ask for what, when you borrow something. And then not harming through sexual activity there's so much in there's so much beauty in positive sexuality, but there's also so much intoxication by it. And when you can be awake within sexuality, it's a beautiful action um, as lay people, as non-monastics. Um, that's a part of our lives, and for sure, there's beauty there. But there's also a lot of um, intoxication around it, and a lot of pain around it when we're not clear. And so. There are overt ways to cause harm, but there are a lot of subtle ways if we're going, if we're not going to be celibate um, around sexuality, making sure we're conscious around it. And even in celibacy, you have to do that with wisdom. You can't just say, oh, I'm celibate, so phew, that whole aspect, I can kind of check the box, no harm there. Because there are certain attitudes you can take on about sexuality that harm you, that sort of take on a negative view of sexuality. And I don't find that that to, to be free. I've, it's just one way that I find celibate people might be keeping themselves celibate by judging uh, sexual activity. And it isn't born of harmlessness or non-cruelty. There can be judgment in there. So how you relate to your sexuality, be conscious and non-harming in it. <clears throat> and then again, deepen your understanding so you don't find anything hiding in there that you're not uh, proud of. That's not a robust expression of your health um, and well-being for yourself and others. And then coming into wise livelihood, wise livelihood is really the the large picture. There are individual actions, but how are you making your way in the world? How do you come by your income? How do you buy your food? In this realm. You can look at livelihood and there's some overt things not to do. He has these five professions that he, he said are so karmically negative that you can't be on the path and uh, be a butcher, um, someone who sells poisons, someone who sells intoxicants, someone who's into weapons trade, and someone who sells humans for uh, slavery or 
uh, sex trafficking. So I can bring up a question, like people have a question about, should all Buddhists be vegetarian? If you're not vegetarian, are you participating in the trade of animal products? Um, but here, the, the most coarse thing is that if you're someone who takes life, um, there's a real question about that, about what it means to be someone who would be constantly taking life. But just as I was starting to begin um, my Buddhist path, I had other belief systems at the time, and one of them was, if I was going to eat meat, I'd, be, I'd better be emotionally prepared to kill the animal myself. So I lived up on the Puget Sound, and <clears throat> these salmon runs would come by, and we would catch salmon, and we'd eat salmon. We could put out dun- uh, crab pots and catch crabs. And at the end of the meal, I was like, okay, I definitely fed myself, so that feels like there's integrity there. I'm not making somebody else do it. But now that it's after the meal, I would rather that salmon were alive, swimming through the Puget Sound, than in my stomach. It's like, I could probably come by my protein some other way. And now it had to die. And there was n- I never got comfortable with the actual act of killing. I had to do it, so you kind of push yourself through it. But it's, <clears throat> it's very hard to do that in a very wholesome way. I know some people who have. I know a friend of mine who's a... He hunts deer, um, and he's deep on the path, and he says a lot of prayers, and even he cries sometimes when he does take a life, and he tries to do it in as honoring a way as possible. Um, but if it's your livelihood and you're doing a lot of it, it'd be very hard to do that and be awake. So that might be a point of discussion about that. But the Buddha pointed out five, um, at least five types of livelihood that he said would be hard to actually develop on the path if you had them. But then as you get to know this path factor, it's really um, how are you as a citizen? How are you in your community? It's not just about course harm, but how are you getting by? How do you have your income of finances or how are you taking care of yourself? And then how do you participate in your community? And are you generating well-being in a broad context? Are you generating harm in a broad context? Is your job something that trains you to be agitated? A lot of people, when they're getting very devoted to their spiritual practice, if they're in a job where the, the climate is so averse to mindfulness, or so averse to their values of kindness, there's so much competition, there's so much agitation, then you really have to do look at this and say, this livelihood doesn't support my desire to wake up this livelihood is keeping me in the trap of being caught. And some people can't change their jobs for whatever reason. So how do you work within the job you have, or do you actually have to put effort into changing your um, vocation? So again, these three, the sila factor, the ethical conduct factor, grows out of the first two. You have the view, you have the application or the approach, We all take action. We're not going to be inert in life. Are we being guided by wisdom? Are we being guided by these wise intentions? And then coming into specific activities and making sure that speech, action, and livelihood are aligned with your your view, the view of waking up, the view of overcoming ignorance and craving. And we go through that, those three, and then the very next one, 
gets into a meditative aspect. And this one comes very close to action. So when you look at wise effort, once you've spent a lot of time looking at your actions, you begin to see what's motivating them. You begin to see, why am I lying? Oh, there's fear going on here. Or I, I really want a certain outcome, so I'm willing to lie for it. Right next to all these actions, you begin to see that certain mind states and heart states are really supportive for beautiful actions. They're very aligned with your wisdom. But certain states of heart and mind are not conducive to your uh, wisdom, not conducive to your waking up. So wise effort is something that you get to know that not a lot of people know. Wise effort people think it's just how much gas you use in practice. Should I really go for it or not? That's one way of thinking about wise effort. But classically, looking at it, it's there are four wise efforts. The abandoning of something unskillful that has arisen and the preventing of something unskillful that hasn't arisen. Those are two efforts. So you sit down to meditation. You could right away say, get, get rid of the sleepiness. I just want to be present. First thing you do is you come in and you feel the sleepiness so you're not cultivating aversion to sleepiness. You learn to accept it and then see, how can I invite a more wakeful quality, not coming from aversion, but out of a kindness to myself? How can I be motivated to be a more awake here? Maybe I'll come to standing, maybe I'll open my eyes. Maybe I'll take a few deep breaths and see if I can dispel the sleepiness that's come. Because the sleepiness is, help, is preventing me from having much more intimacy with my environment. So abandoning anger that has arisen, abandoning obsession that has arisen. You can either do it directly and see if just a direct challenge could eject that state. But often you have to understand it. You have to come in and see what is it hooked on, what's feeding it, and that will be a much deeper letting go. And then when you've worked hard to abandon unskillful states, you start to learn what brings them on. And it's like, if I eat a huge lunch, I'll be sleepy all afternoon. If I eat a lot of sugar, I'll feel really agitated. If I drink too much caffeine, I'll be agitated. Um, what brings on these unskillful states? Wanting what I really want and then talking to somebody I disagree with makes me very angry. So if I'm gonna have that conversation, how can I prevent my anger from arising? Over time you get to know yourself and you get better at preventing, steering around unskillful states arising, learning how to navigate yourself. Then you get the next two efforts, cultivating beautiful or skillful mind states. That's what we do in loving kindness. That's what we do in the mindfulness practice. We're learning to cultivate more calm. We're learning to cultivate contentment with the way things are. We're learning to cultivate insight into arising and passing. They wouldn't be there if we didn't cultivate it. Cultivating kindness, compassion, patience. You can cultivate these beautiful states. And the fourth wise effort is to sustain what's arisen. So you might feel calm, but not appreciate it. And so when the thought of lunch comes up, you kind of eject the calm, you don't, you don't value it. And so you're more likely to get caught up in some desire that comes along. But if you're really saying, wow, this calm is deep, it's rare, it's subtle, really appreciating it. Oh, here comes a obsession for something. I'm not going to find my happiness down that road. Let's see if we can actually really get to know what it's like to breathe in this calm state. 
And then some, I hear somebody talking over there that's irritating me. They shouldn't be. Uh, I'm not going to go on that whole train why people shouldn't be talking over there. I have some calm right here. I'm going to actually learn to preserve this. Then you can actually preserve your calm and talk to the people who are talking and see if you can be quiet. You can actually go have lunch. But how do I keep this calm? And it's not by clinging to it. With wisdom, you see, you can't cling to beautiful states, but you can learn to sustain them. So those are the next, those, those um, work very beautifully together. If you can see the flow of the Eightfold Path, it requires mindfulness to know what's happening while it's happening. But in detail, the development of mindfulness is first to be intimate with the way things are, and then to begin to explore certain aspects of experience, as we've been doing, the arising and passing nature, the pleasant and pleasant quality of nature of experience. So the, the under wise mindfulness, we have these four, um, really being mindful of body experience, really being mindful of Vedana, which is the pleasant and pleasant quality of experience, or the neutrality. Mindfulness of mind states is just knowing them without intervention, knowing when you're at peace, knowing when you're restless, knowing when you're craving something. No intervention, just really knowing these states as they occur so you get more sophisticated at knowing the states. And the fourth thing in wise mindfulness is called dhammas. And dhammas you might think of as processes, is sort of seeing how things play out. So once you know your states one by one as they occur, you see them over time. And you're learning the underlying truth that craving doesn't lead to happiness. But you see that over time. You learn that by letting go of craving, you actually can find a type of contentment that you weren't aware before. That seeing the Dhamma, the truth, the law of how your mind and heart work. It's the fourth one. It's the fourth development of mindfulness. We first become intimate and then begin to explore specific aspects of our experience. And we train ourselves in our own freedom through that. And lastly, just to wrap up the list here, we have the eighth factor, which is wise samadhi. And that's thought of as these four jhanas. And the word jhana is translated as absorption. So the ability to be fully absorbed in your breath without distraction and then from being absorbed in your breath, can you see the arising and passing nature of experience? Being absorbed in what it's like to feel into your body without distraction. And then seeing the pleasure and pain and neutrality playing out in your body. Being absorbed in watching how your mind is working without distraction. And then seeing what it's like to be at peace. And when craving begins to arise and your happiness seems elsewhere. That type of ability to be fully absorbed in the present moment is the development of samadhi. And it supports all the developments of these other factors. When you're really present, you can see your motivation behind speech in a way you haven't before. When I came off one of the first three-month retreats, I went right into celebrating Christmas with my family, and it was amazing to watch all these compulsions happening in me <clears throat> that I was always just too drawn up by them. So my brother would say something, you'd be irritating. My dad would say something I'd want a response from him. And I was being pushed and pulled, but after the retreat, I could just see it all. I felt all these motivations. It's like, oh, I don't want to act on that. I don't want to put that in motion. And that whole habit would arise and pass. And I turned back to my brother. I was like, oh my God, I've never been able to not 
fall for that irritation response to what you just said. So now what's this? I've never been here before with you. I'm not being compulsively drawn into an old pattern. And so a new opportunity would arise. So that ability to have samadhi and mindfulness, I could apply my wisdom, see what was happening, have much more choice around my actions. All these eight folds work so beautifully together when they, when they start to develop and they support each other in the context of waking up in the Four Noble Truths, of letting go of ignorance, letting go of craving, letting go of the suffering that they cause. The mind becomes a little more peaceful, you can see things more clearly, and really start understanding what's actually happening versus misunderstanding it and walking through life feeling kind of tired and confused because you're not seeing things clearly. You can see things clearly. That's how these eight folds work to deliver us more deeply into the third noble truth, the relief that comes, that you all have been experiencing. We all have been practicing these eight folds over the week and even before, but we've been doing it much more consciously, much more with purpose and putting effort into it. And so you can feel that. When people are talking about feeling less agitation, more well-being day by day on a retreat like this, it's because these factors are ripening and they're delivering. They ripen and they deliver the taste of the third noble truth and, and more often a greater expression of that freedom. Any questions about this, the architecture of the Eightfold Path? I have a question about this word Dhamma. Mm -hmm. um, is it the same as the, the word that means teachings? Yes. Oh, okay. So, it's, um, I didn't understand what it meant in this context. Yeah. So, uh, the word Dhamma is the same as the Sanskrit word Dharma. So, Dharmas, <clears throat> it's a word that has several different meanings. Uh, so here's, I want, I'm going to draw upon um, a different system. You have gravity and architecture. Gravity is a, is a lawful phenomena. There are laws to gravity. Gravity is a force in the universe. If you want to build a building, you have to understand gravity. So you make your walls straight up and down, and you make sure that the roof can be supported by the walls you're building. So there's a whole understanding of how to build something because you know about gravity. So one level <clears throat> of dhamma would be the field of gravity is a dhamma, it's a lawfulness. And then there's ways to work within that field skillfully. And architecture is an example of how we work within the field of gravity so that your buildings are stable. The word dhamma here, there are underlying processes around suffering and the end of suffering. Those are dhammas. Sort of, there's a lawfulness to how it all is working. There are also teachings around that. Any expression of wisdom around the lawfulness is also considered a dhamma. So dhamma is both the, the phenomena and the laws and the teachings about those laws. Both are used in terms of this word dhamma. So you would say uh, Buddha Dhamma, the Buddha Dhamma, is only concerned with suffering and the end of suffering. 
Newton Dhamma is interested in gravity. Einstein Dhamma is interested in the speed of light. Um, it's sort of there's a realm that is, that has these laws within it, and then there's the teaching, the understanding that comes. The skillful way to work with that field is also considered dhamma. And and when you use the word processes for it, um, I was reminded of your discussion of karma. Is karma a dhamma? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> uh, karma is a dhamma. It's definitely in the realm of Buddhist Buddhism. The processes that we're interested suffering in the end of suffering, karma plays a role within that. Greed plays a role within that. So does renunciation plays a role within that. So when we look at the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is its own beautiful teaching, these four foundations of mindfulness, we start to watch how things really unfold in terms of how our suffering really happens and how our suffering really comes to an end. So I might be sitting here, somebody coughs loudly, and I wrongly say, because that person coughed, I now am agitated. That person shouldn't have coughed. That's, that's my confusion. I sit a little bit longer with it, and someone coughs, and it's unpleasant, and I don't like the unpleasantness. So I've actually seen with the mindfulness into the Dhamma of my agitation. I've seen, oh, I like, I like this calm. That person coughed. It irritated me, and now I'm buzzing with my irritation, wishing that hadn't happened, because I'm clinging to the calm I had before. We're looking into these mechanisms that cause our suffering, and then I begin to let go of the calm, meet the suffering of the agitation. It begins to dissolve, and I return to calm. I say, oh, I've just learned how to bring my suffering to an end. These are, there's a lawfulness to how that all unfolded. Right. There's an understanding and then the teachings on it. In terms of this word dhamma in this context, it's using mindfulness to understand the processes of suffering, what they grow out of, how we bring it to an end, and then seeing the Eightfold Path in motion. Thank you. I'm thinking now, I was thinking the word mechanism, and then it's like, this is how things work, kind of, and then there's this other concept of the way things are that I think has a different word. It's not this, that's not this. This is how things work, how the pieces work together. Yeah. And then that way things are, is sort of that the, deeper the, truth that you... Well, there's a, there's a phrase called the yata bhuta, and that's very close to this. Yata bhuta is a um, Pali phrase where you're, <clears throat> you, you really do see the way things are working. You see the way things are. And so you're, you're seeing that um, these glasses are not permanent. So seeing that they're not permanent is just a quality of my glasses. I'm seeing their nature. Seeing my obsession that they last forever, that's a dhamma of my suffering. So I'm not sure if I'm splitting the hair correctly, but cert- sometimes you just see the way things are, and that's yata bhuta, that's seeing the way things are, the nature of things. Then within the nature of things, you learn the processes of suffering and not suffering. So that rain drops and it feels wet. That doesn't have, that doesn't make me suffer. It's just a process that I don't like it. That's the process of my suffering and my struggle against it. 
So the way things are is a vast category. The dhammas that we're interested in are the ones that create suffering or release suffering. Is that helpful? Okay. So this fourth foundation of mindfulness is really looking at the Eightfold Path in motion very very um, intimately and learning from that. And so, uh, but you really need the, the momentum of the first three to understand the body, understand pleasure and pain, and understand um, these uh, processes to begin to untangle the, the habits that we have. And then samadhi is sort of like Galileo's telescope, because we're not in ordinary states of mind, but we're really stabilized our attention. That deep stability of attention is a development of samadhi. We stabilize our attention and then become intimate with what we are attending. So our mind is not distracted, it's become strong, not easily kicked around by other experiences. And then I can become intimate and really learn from what's happening moment by moment. This underlying stability and unification of heart and mind is the, the development of samadhi. Understanding that and how the four different variations of it, again, is its own retreat even to really develop it. But there are ways to, to deepen your sense of stability with present experiences. And that's the development of these four absorptions, these four aspects of samadhi. Any other questions about the Eightfold Path as the <clears throat> tangible steps that lead to the eradication of suffering, the eradication of misunderstanding? Does someone else have one? Um, I went on a retreat in April with Bhante Gunaratana, who comes out of the Theravada tradition. And he was referring to eight jhanas, I think. Mm-hmm. I think it was eight. Yeah. Um, and he talked about them in the sense of like progressive uh, levels of concentration. Mm-hmm. So I guess one question is, how did the four here relate to the eight that he was referring to? And then the second question is, uh, is that progressive progressive deepening of concentration, how does that um, work into this samadhi category? Yeah. And so there are, in our tradition, there are eight types of absorption. The first four are highly recommended. Each one of them is so helpful, but it's if you can get to the fourth absorption, um, there's such a stillness inside that you really begin to see things unfolding. So the analogy again is if you had a a large fish tank with a lot of fish in it and you kept shaking it, you'd never see the natural condition of fish because they'd always be responding to the agitation of the water. But you let that water settle and then the fish come out of their disturbed, um, stirred mode and then you see they would school and how they would feed and their mating rituals and all that. But the water has to be fairly still to really see how fish um, work in the wild. If you're always stirring the tank, you're just seeing them in reactivity. When you get to this fourth absorption, some part of you inside is so incredibly 
still and at peace and content that whatever is in motion, you can see it clearly and it's not getting glimpses of it, not getting kind of like, I think I understand what's happening about this arising and passing, but I, I can't land on it. With each one of these absorptions, you get more and more and more still. And so they're recommended. Some people by temperament, it's very hard for them to get to that fourth jhana, but they get the third one, great. The third one is not quite as still, but it's very content. It's just not perfectly still in certain, it has a slight stirring within it, but it's a happy stirring. So anyways, there are these four, they do progress. They progress from something that's, the first one feels like you're holding yourself steady. The second one feels like you're delighted in what you're seeing, but you don't have to hold yourself there because you're so fascinated by what you're seeing. The third one, you feel more relaxed, more calm, more patient at what you're seeing because you're content. And the fourth one, you're very, very still in witnessing. There are four more jhanas and you can train in them because they make that stillness so much more phenomenal. And they show you aspects of the heart and mind that are very um, rarefied, but it's when you come out of them that you can do really productive vipassana. So they're kind of interesting unto themselves a mind that's aware of infinite space without any particular thing taking up the space. You just become aware there's no limit to spaciousness. There's no limit actually to my mind. My mind doesn't sound like a milk jug that you hit some type of container. When you feel into that infinite space, actually the mind doesn't have a boundary. Consciousness doesn't have a a spatial boundary. It's also infinite. You can go further than that and say beyond mind and space, there actually is something that feels without detail, without content. It's nothingness. And there's this eighth one, which is your mind doesn't even have anything to perceive. It can't even perceive nothingness. It just suspends this activity of perception. It can't land on anything to perceive. That's a little bit esoteric for all of us, but just to kind of, as you ask the question, those are the eight. They go to the four, the first four, they're very useful. You can train in the next four. They're kind of esoteric, but when you come out of them, you feel like your mind is just so stable, unrocked by anything. So the Vipassana you do at that time is incredibly productive and you start having the epiphanies that translate because your mind has this underlying stability. So that's why they make it onto this list because to the degree we can absorb in present time experiences, we're more productive with our insight practice. And rather than just being lightly absorbed, the Buddha said, develop at least these four. And if you can't get to the fourth one, but you can get to the first, second, or third, it's so incredibly productive because you've taken out that restless distractedness of mind. So you find that type of stability. And you've all tasted that. You've all tasted those moments, those glimpses, when the mind stabilizes some, it's content enough not to be looking for something else. And those moments, you touch anything and your heart is fully available at that time for whatever it is that you're exploring. So that's just developing these absorptions. So the way I'm thinking of it now is that the four genres is a list, but the fourth one is its own list of four, another five. four. There's another four. So, the, so it would be five. It would be its own list of five. Of sorts. <clears throat> okay. it, 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 
it isn't talked about that way, but the taste of the other four tastes like the fourth. It's just very, very still, but you can keep refining the mind four more steps further. But as soon as you come out of those four, what you taste is this profound stillness. And it gets more and more profound and more and more still, more and more pervasive, harder and harder to rock if you've gone through even higher stages of this absorption. I'll add something to that. Um, so the, um, as Temple was saying, the, the first four jhanas um, are actually stages of deepening of concentration and more settling and more letting go of, of agitation. Um, the fourth one is um, pretty much as as deep in terms of settling as one gets, quality, um, in terms of depth and letting go of of agitation, and the other four, the five through eight, um, are the same level of depth as the four, but qualitatively they are different because the object of absorption is different. So the quality of mind is different. So as Temple was saying, uh, being absorbed in infinite space, inf- and then with the sixth one, um, infinite consciousness, and then nothingness or no thingness. So when the mind in the seventh one is observed in no thing, that in itself, like what does that mean? So it's another level of refinement. Though the level of stillness is the same as the fourth. And with the eighth one, um, the base of neither perception nor non-perception it's very gauzy. It's very thin. So it's perception. It's you. The, the mind is neither perceiving nor not perceiving, and it's, it's almost a conundrum that the, the um, intelligent mind can't really perceive, uh, what, even when one is experiencing it. So, um, but in terms of um, so in terms of um, mental factors. Uh, in terms of what what is let go of, and in terms of what remains in the mind, um, and Abhidhamma talks about the uh, Abhidhamma, the higher teachings talk about the mental factors. The fourth jhana have the same mental factors as five through eight, uh, but qualitatively they are, since the object is more get, getting more and more refined, quality of the mind is different, and it is. Oh, any time, yeah. Um, just to finish that off. Um, and it is said that, and the reason why only the first four jhanas here on, on the list and not the other ones is because for deep insight, uh, the first four are enough. Getting out of, um, especially the fourth one, is the depth of, of settling that one needs in order to penetrate reality. Any other questions about the architecture of the Eightfold path and its role within the Four Noble Truths. You might think of that. Thanks, Duke, for the question. Anybody else? I don't quite know how to ask this, but when you find you're not doing one well, 
not doing one well <laughs> oh doing a, a factor of the path yeah, yeah. let me just be honest <laughs> <laughs> okay let's talk let, let's let's tolerate tolerate some honesty <laughs> if not now when oh, damn yeah right um I didn't want to be honest. <laughs> um, so, um, and it's about honesty. So, for me, honesty is, so I'm not sure if it falls under wise speech or um, wise action. So, I um, have trouble being uh, honest. Um, I'm pretty honest. <laughs> um, and I consider myself an honest person. But when I um, interact with my sponsor, often I'm not honest. I want to be honest, and my intention is to be honest. Um, what are you um, trying to get or trying to avoid? I'm trying to um, get her approval mm -hmm. to avoid um, losing her. Yeah. In my program, if we aren't abstinent, very often our sponsor will drop us. Right. And I very much love my sponsor. And I've worked with her for a number of years. Right. And um, and I've lost a sponsor uh, that I loved very much because I when I got rigorously honest, she dropped me like that. And um, so, what is the cost? Well, you're exactly uh, of not being honest. Right. Right. Um, I'm afraid a lot of the time interacting with her. Right. Um, and there's shame and there's avoidance and there's right. manipulation and mm -hmm. there's all these things that yeah. means that you're, you're not really having, she's not really knowing you. She's knowing you with some modifications. Right. And that's some of the expense of it. I would consider two things. One, at a, you, mm, sometimes the integrity is nutritious. The integrity is what? The, the integrity is nutritious in a way that you're robbing yourself of some nutrition because you don't have integrity around your speech. So one whole mode to move into is come what may I'm going to become more skillful with my honesty honesty is not a switch you throw and you blab out whatever skillful around my honesty so it has strength it has integrity how do we do that and how do we what things are we avoiding to say that it's appropriate to avoid to say them and what things are we avoiding? And it leaves that sickly feeling inside because we can feel like something else is motivating us. They're, when I talk with children, they don't get the full truth. 
because I can't find a way to actually tell them a full truth. It's not what they need to know, but other people, yeah, they get more of the truth. So there's skill around honesty. It doesn't make me feel sick with a lack of integrity. So that's one whole way. Another way, and this really is, if you look at, there are four foundations of mindfulness. And this, what I'm about to say, happens all through the Buddha's teachings. One is a very noble difference. And you put effort, courageous efforts, into opening up a different habit, a different possibility. And you, you just take it because it's worth it. You do it because it's worth it. Another is, you sit with things as they are, and you understand it. So what you're getting from her, if you really sat with it, and while you're lying, that, if you kept walking down through that experience, it would take you to something so fragile, and so quiet, and so um, vulnerable inside. And so if you were to follow this down, experientially, like there's shame, I'm lying, there's these things I want, and I'm all up here with it, but let me just take it down. Where's this coming from? Oh, God. I was right here in my stomach. I feel there's a hole there. Oh, I'm afraid I, I will be obliterated. I'm so scared of it. What if I put my hand there and I actually grow a capacity to be mindful of this experience that's been exposed because I've been really before I changed anything and got heroic, I just got honest, went down, down, down through the experience and then found what was really feeding it. I'm afraid I'm unlovable. I'm afraid I'll always be alone. I'm afraid of this, I'm afraid of that. And you learn to give yourself kindness down on that level. Then when that ends up healing to any degree, it ripples up and you find I don't. I can be more honest. I'm not risking as much. So, these two things are played out throughout the teachings because they're so useful. And often there's a pendulum back and forth. Sometimes you just need to put effort in and say, "I'm not doing things I don't agree with," and I'd rather do that and deal with the consequences than feel so compromised all the time. Or there's going into something and really understanding what's driving it. Both are liberating. Mm -hmm. If you haven't done one in a while, you should do it. Just a courageous pushing in life is one thing. And um, so much tolerance that you've never challenged yourself on a certain habit. Try the challenges if you haven't done that. I've done it many times. <laughs> yeah. Or try that deep, compassionate listening. Where is this all coming from? Mm -hmm. Down, down, down through it. Really down to find what's, that, what's the core of this experience. I had a friend who drank a lot. And as I got deeper into practice, he said, to be honest, I sometimes have anxiety when I hang out with you in the afternoon and that evening I know I'm going to get really drunk because if you ever ask me about it, I feel anxious about it. And I was like, well, I, actually at this point in my life, I don't have an opinion about it. But if it's worth doing, really do it with your eyes wide open. I mean, if you love doing it, don't do it with half your attention. Do it with all of your attention. Really get drunk and watch the whole process it's worth doing, do it with your eyes open. Next day we had, we like two days later we met, and he's like, you ruined it for me. <laughs> I, I wasn't trying to ruin it for you. But he said, you ruined it for me because when I really paid attention, I thought, yeah, if this is so worth doing, I'll do it with my eyes open. 
And they thought, wait, I just took that second drink because I was feeling uncomfortable with so-and-so. And if we both drank together, then we were kind of friends in it. But now I'm feeling all kind of weird and the alcohol is coming. And, and with his eyes open, he didn't, I didn't have to say, don't do it. It's bad. I said, do it with your eyes open. And he, that was new for him. He did it with his eyes open and he learned so much about where it was really coming from. So that really honest, you don't need to be different, but let's just understand what's happening here is a type of courageous vulnerability. And then every now and then you say, okay, I've done a lot of that. Now it's just time, no goddamn sugar in my diet for the next month. And I'm serious about it this time. And I don't care about everybody who's going to be pissed off because they have to keep changing their food. And no, I will not put sugar in my mouth for this next month. Damn it. And you really try that rather than always trying to get down to the compassionate core, sometimes break a habit. And you do that for a while, and then everything is willpower. It's like, okay, let's go back down. Where's this all coming from? I find that if I'm only doing one or the other, but not both, I'm not really challenging habits that are not productive. So that's what I would recommend. We'll do one more, and then we'll uh, take our break. If, uh, okay, different question, kind of changed the pace a little bit. Um, if, Buddha was, if Buddha was alive today, what do you think he'd be saying about things that we face all the time? Uh, social issues, abortion, gay marriage, um, should we buy the iPhone 6 or, we, you know, how, how would he handle sort you of, go maybe, maybe not category <laughs> <laughs> and guess? But, uh, but on the other ones and other sort of social issues that come up, you mentioned vegetarianism, and I didn't really hear. You sort of said you weren't comfortable with it, but you weren't necessarily saying it's bad. Buddha ate meat. You know, you get all these discussions, and people throw their religion and things at it. And I'm not trying to make you do that in this case, but if you want to, you're welcome to. But, um, but it would be interesting here. Even, even the Buddha's disciples had different, they didn't have one response to the world. They all had proclivities. And so it's not about doing anything right, but as your heart is intimate more and more with an experience, some people find that they come down, like an example of vegetarianism, their heart awakens and they have compassion. They recognize we're in a predator-prey relationship and I really am sorry for the harm. I'm, I have compassion for this system. I'm still willing to eat meat. Some people come down and they hit that same point and they go, you know, it doesn't feel right, I'm not going to eat meat. Some people say, you know, I don't even like the taste of it, it's not an issue for me. So there's no right or wrong there, you just come down through it. The right or wrong is, are you actually causing harm, like directly? Because there's no way you can cause harm without it being sort of violently motivated. Are you actually stealing? So there are some things you can really look at and pretty quickly most people say, there's no way to do that and really feel what's happening. But once you get into the nuances, people break different ways. And at the time, his monks and nuns and lay people went different ways. And so there doesn't end up being a formula except keep feeling and keep opening. And if you develop and you come to a thing, at some point you say, I can't do this anymore. It's really not helpful. And something else, it's like, you know, I have to take this on. I got so ill that adding salmon oil back to my diet, after years of being a vegetarian, I watched myself being wasted 
for years in physical pain. And my family watching this and all the distress that this was coming from. And I just, one little salmon oil capsule a day, and I watched my body sit up. And was, I'm, not, I'm not at peace with it. I've like, come to terms with it. I've come to terms with the fact that the world is complex. I can't drive a car without killing bugs on my windshield. I know they're going to die, but I still drive the car because I believe if there's a greater good happening. There's no way to get out of it, the confusions, so you eventually have to mature your relationship to the confusions. So that's what the Buddha would do in each of these situations. He would try to look at what's going on and see what's being cultivated. Um, let's take a five-minute stretch break and then go to the groups. Just so we have time for the groups. And what I would recommend, this is the last time we'll have these groups because it's the last day of the retreat, if you hadn't noticed. <laughs> One more thing to say. Uh, yeah, Duke, if you could um, turn it off. One more thing to say about Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.